soul of an internet machine, a podcast journaling the adventures of a software development team creating new applications for a Belgian client called ElectroTest. We are striving to meet the client's requirements, improve process, build great software, have a bit of fun, and maybe make a few new friends. Follow us through our shared adventures. My name is Christina Moore. Find me at the website christinamore.us. So, welcome to Series 2023. This podcast has no sponsorships, accepts no advertising, and represents my individual efforts. Enjoy for free and no annoying interruptions. Episode 5, The Color of Language. Ever watch a traditional American house get built? We use a lot of lumber or sticks. Within the span of a day or three, the frame of the house rises from the foundation with incredible speed. Standing up the framework of an application using standardized techniques, tools, and limiting customization seems just as fast. When we start, like our kin in the home construction industry, we swing with a big hammer. I know you want to tell me that big hammers have become passe. Those crews use pneumatic nailers powered by air compressors or batteries. Yeah, 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 fine. It's an analogy. We don't slow down. We stand up as much as we can, as fast as we can. In the absence, or maybe in lieu of a detailed plan, the menu system shows us what yet to do. It familiarizes the client with a vision for the end product. With two applications linked together, allowing a credentialed user to jump between admin and customer service tools simultaneously, as we did by mid-January of 2021, we all see our shared vision objectively. Maybe not yet our shared vision, what we built resembled both the native Oracle Apex environment plus the client's colors, logos, and fonts. Through this initial framework, we, the development team, offered a vision. From here, a shared vision developed through shared work. We also need to accommodate the multiple languages of French, Dutch, and the English that the developers depended on. We need to comply with European data privacy laws, which are stricter than those in the United States. Building a robust application that accommodates the nuanced complexities that our client will require to differentiate and support their business practices, we design speed and resilience into our system. Designing for speed also means avoiding techniques that rob us of speed. Speed within a database environment honors a series of rules called data normalization. A discussion about data normalization typically involves slides discussing abstract rules about optimizing complex data within a database environment. Edgar Ted Codd, born in 1923, invented the relational model for database management. He worked for IBM. He received the Turing Award in 1981. Oh, joy, Microsoft Word did not try to remove Alan Turing's name from my script like it did last time. Dr. Cobb developed the relational database model in 1969. Sixty years later, his initial work expanded. The initial data normalization steps that I learned have expanded, and some nomenclature has changed. The amazing thing to me is that people invented relational databases. People invented programming languages. Today, we argue about these topics, forgetting the humanity underpinning these technologies. I have taken a biology class in nearly every decade. Biology in high school, biology again at university, biology-related stuff when working, technology in hospitals and public health. Twice I earned my EMT, once I earned my paramedic. Later I became a critical care paramedic, biology, biology, and more biology. 
When thinking about a graduate degree, school informed me that my own bachelor's degree had expired. Well, technically, the degree had not expired. Nobody reached out and shredded my diploma. The grad schools decided that if a biology course or a chemistry course were not current within the recent five years, then I must take them again. Of course, I resisted, and I did take them again. When I first studied cellular biology, we focused on the exciting bit of cellular division. Cells returned to the inert phase, then called the resting phase. I had to memorize the various stages of cellular division and their names. That was high school, and again at university. Returning to a formal biology classroom later in life, we suddenly discovered that the resting phase is the more interesting and more active part of a cell's life. It does cellular things. It makes proteins expressed from instructions within DNA. Seemed so obvious to me when I learned this the second time. How did we get it so wrong when I was younger? I learned facts in school. Solid, immutable facts. Facts that if I got them wrong on a test, I failed. Facts that if I had them memorized, I passed exams. These lessons of attending the same courses decades apart illustrated that science and technology reach to learn more, understand more. My regret about my early childhood is that when learning these hard and proven facts, it seems to have limited some intellectual freedoms. One did not ask, what happens during the resting phase to a high school teacher? The student doesn't know, and the teacher does not likely know. And the test answer is, the cell is resting. My favorite college professor, John Junk, stood before his Bio 101 course each year to give a lecture called, There Are No Facts. Unlike the modern disputes about facts, he forced no political agenda. He challenged each in the audience to approach science and technology with an open mind. We must eschew assumptions. Oh, you think two plus two equals four? Then he reaches under the lectern. He pours two liters of clear water-like fluid into a container with two liters of clear water-like fluid. The total was a bit less than the expected four liters. A bit of chemistry happened, given that one of the two fluids was not water. Bluntly put, he performed a parlor trick for us. As an illustration, it works. He encouraged students to be curious, skeptical, and carry a bit of doubt when people get dogmatic about anything. I came through life because of my own education and the influences of my teachers, like John Junk, that we must be curious and skeptical. We must express a bit of doubt about facts that get expressed dogmatically. We learned in the later half of the 20th century that cellular meiosis falls at the beginning of a cell's life doing a cell's job, often making proteins and doing important stuff. The cell doesn't rest, as we once learned. It lives. Our bias focused on the activities we could see with a basic optical microscope. All of this technology we use to build and support applications results from inventions and ideas that came from the minds of people. People like you and like me, we invented it all. Writing this episode, I returned to literature to visit the process of normalizing data. I should never have looked away thinking I knew and understood the rules. They have expanded and the terminology had shifted on me. 
The Wikipedia article provides a timeline of when the advances in normal forms were published. The initial three normal forms were published in the early 1970s. The sixth normal form was published in 2003. When honoring the process of normalizing data, we gain speed and maximize performance within relational databases. I do promise we are talking about how to manage multiple spoken languages within a database. In episode two, Data Tables, I mentioned that my colleague Dirk provided us with 132 table definitions filling over 5,000 lines of text. I discussed the importance of the unique primary key for each row or record of data. One row of data contains the data profile for precisely one subject. One example was the customer table. The customer table has a primary key called the customer PK. All of the data within that row relate to that exact customer. If it doesn't relate to or describe an element of the client's profile, then it doesn't belong. The statement of fact, which I surround with quotes, complies with the first normal form of data. Thank you, Dr. Cobb. You documented this idea and stamped it with a name in 1970. When a data row has a singular primary key, as our customer table does with the customer PK, then it meets the standards for the second normal form. Well done us. This seems obvious to software developers. It seems so obvious to some that we forget the intelligence and humanity behind this concept. Data tables relate to each other. We do not store each and every invoice within the customer table. Instead, we create a table that stores the invoice data. In that table, we'll have a unique primary key called invoice PK, meeting both the first and second normal forms. Well done us. In the second position at that invoice table, we keep the foreign key for the customer table. That foreign key, our team calls the customer FK, foreign key. I look at that knowing instantly that invoices relate to customers and the customer foreign key connects to the customer primary key. We break the data into logical and non-duplicating elements. For example, some may opt to put a customer's address in the customer's table. Here's a street name, the municipality name, the state or province, the postal code. Suddenly, we find a customer with two addresses. Or maybe one address is for milling and the other address is for shipping. Maybe one address is the physical address, etc. We all have experienced this complexity. When I order from an online vendor... I have one postal code for our physical address and a separate postal code for our mailing address. When I want items shipped to our house, I use the postal code for a municipality that is 50 kilometers east of us. The credit card statement goes to a different postal code, which carries a different municipality name. Neither of these agree with the emergency services, 911 or 999, address for our farm. That is a third address. Yes, all of these three addresses land on our 40-hectare property clinging to the side of the world's oldest mountain range. To manage the complexity of our addresses, we ought to have a table for addresses. The first column is reserved for the address primary key. Yes, of course, it's called address PK. The second column is then for the customer foreign key, customer FK. 
These relationships and efforts to segregate data into parent-child relationships satisfies the third normal form. The customer is parent to both address and invoices. In human speak, one customer may have zero, one, or more addresses. One customer may have zero, one, or more invoices. A parent table may have zero, one, or more related child rows of data in other tables. I've always had difficulty in telling a story about the fourth normal form of relational data. It is a subtle shift in perception of data duplication. In the prior forms, we strove to eliminate the duplication of data within a row. In short, the normalization process discouraged us from having fields such as address 1 and address 2 and address 3 and address 4 in our tables. We should pull that mess out and create an address table, then simplify the customer table. We want to remove these duplicate-like fields of address 1, address 2, address 3. It makes our lives easier. Picture a customer with only one address. Can you picture how to handle a customer with four addresses? How do we handle that? In the fourth normal form, we strive to reduce redundancies between the rows of data. In the second normal form, we don't want to keep adding additional fields to accommodate new and more addresses for the customer. That's inefficient and difficult to write. It brings more problems than it solves. Dr. Cobb was right. In the fourth normal form, we reduce the number of rows by creating related tables. Imagine that each contact at a customer also includes the customer's address, the customer's primary phone and number and such. In this example, five rows of contact data would have the same customer name. Five rows would have the same address. Five rows would have the same phone number. This can result in a table having compound keys. The most important data fields are duplicated. When searching for the contacts of Acme Company, I get five rows with the name Acme Company. I can see five rows with the same phone number and five rows with the same address. Imagine that two of my contact people have the surname Gonzalez. What if a father and son duo work there? Suddenly we have Pablo Gonzalez, the father, and Pablo Gonzalez, the son. When we look at the data, do we have one person or two? What is the key we need to find one person uniquely? Searching this contact table gets messy and complicated. Sometimes developers use two keys to find data or three keys to find data. Sometimes we must use compound keys to find data. This violates the fourth data normalization form. We should decompose the data or normalize the data. Databases find data quickly because we index the data that sorts the data, often alphabetically. When we search for Pablo Gonzalez, the database optimizes its efforts to know where P is located. Obviously, I've oversimplified. The database does not search through every row of data looking for Pablo. It searches through a pre-sorted and stored abstraction of the data. Searching in these pre-sorted data abstracts is incredibly fast. We win the speed game. Thank you, indices. We love you. These indices work 
only if the software developers honored the data normalization forms developed by Dr. Cobb and his colleagues. We want to reduce the duplication of data by relying on the relational nature of data tables. We do not want to jump sideways in a table to find the customer address, especially through bunches of fields named address 1, address 2, address 3, address 4. We do not want to fill out the data tables with rows of redundant data. That bloats the data and causes performance problems with indices. Often, when we create redundant data going vertically through a table, we then rely on one or more keys to find the data. Managing compound keys is a pain in the anatomy. As this project progresses, we deliberately step away from these ideals. Every time the hero of our story, yes, me, fusses and fumes about the potential messes of someone else's designs and suggestions, I am observing that we are straying away from these rules. Most of the time, I lose. To be tactful and polite human, I ought to say that I yielded my opinion to the greater harmony of the team. Nobody likes a dogmatic whiner saying, this is the right way. I don't want to be a dogmatic whiner. I want to create the best, fastest, and most supportable software for clients. Well done working with me through the Boyce Cobb normalization form. It will come up as the project progresses. This segmentation and organization of data falls beyond the standard thought models that normal humans have. There's the struggle. Should I stand with a spear and a shield at the castle gates defending the fundamentals of relational database design? Or not? I do not want to be that ass, saying, We've been doing it this way since 1970, and I don't know why we should be changing it now. I hate that sentiment. I've gotten tired of hearing it, and I shall not want to say it to another. On the other hand... When we violate the rules, we degrade performance. We degrade the flexibility of our data. We degrade our ability to support the system. We degrade our ability to expand systems. We use the world's premier database platform. That platform had been invented and built around Dr. Cobb's data model. If you want the best, do it right. Not all applications require optimal data performance. Not all applications store millions of rows of data. Therefore, not all applications require a robust world-class database environment like Oracle and its competitors. If our decision is Oracle and Oracle's database, then should we not then endeavor to follow the four fundamental rules of how to organize data? It would all be perfect if it were not for human beings. Like Plato's ideal plane, the ideal data normalization form often remains an objective instead of a reality. Now, let's return to supporting multiple spoken languages within our Electrotest application. Dirk's 132 data table spanning over 5,000 lines ignored the second normal form in every single table. We ticked the boxes for the first and third normal form. We did pretty good structures and unique, useful primary keys. But in every table, we have a field for name and for description in Dutch, French, and English. Let's look at the table called Invoice Methods, one of hundreds of our lookup tables. This table has two rows, by post, 
by email. The primary key called invoice method PK is by post and by email, all caps in English. Nobody wants to see all caps and an underbar or underscore between two words. Therefore, the table needs a column that humans like to see on pages, in reports, on invoices, etc. In most of our tables through most of my career, we create a field called name. Oops, but we must have the name in Dutch, French, and English. One row of data now says per post in Dutch, par courrier in French, and by post in English. We now have three versions of the name field, one for Dutch, one for French, and one for English. We just violated one of the data normalization forms. Think of it. What if we needed to support German? Some of the folks in Belgium speak German as their mother tongue. To accommodate German, we must then alter hundreds of data tables to add a new column for the German version of the name, Mitte Post. Had we satisfied the third normal form, adding a fourth or fifth language becomes realistic. The client's rule, the project leader's rule, everybody's rule was that we would never need German or Spanish or Italian. As a team, we denormalize the data for the storing of data in three languages. We gain a ton of power and a ton of speed. All of our lookup tables have the following identical fields. Dutch, the name in Dutch. French, the name in French. English, the name in English. Active, a yes or no field telling us if the row is active or archived. Display order, letting the client put forward their favorite stuff at the top of a list. Four audit fields storing the name and date related to creating the row and updating that row. Only the table name and the table's primary key differ. If I have 50 identical tables, then I create one Apex page once. I copy it. I change the table name, the primary key name, and save it. Copy it again. I don't have to do anything else. All of the fields are the same. The logic behind the scenes is exactly the same. I can create 50 pages for 50 lookup tables in a day or two, maybe as fast as five minutes per table. In each decision, we face the classic cost-benefit analysis. Our storage of the French, Dutch, and English violates the third normalization form. Adding German, Spanish, or Italian will be complicated and expensive. On the other hand, we saved hundreds of hours. The query we write to look up these data are 99% the same. The consistency pays off. We reduce the risk of errors. We reduce the risk to slow down to refer to a table to discover what we call the French name in this table. It is always the same. In my text editor, Notepad++, I keep these queries so I can copy and paste them. I don't want to type them again. The query reads like this. Select case. When user's language preference is Dutch, then show Dutch. When user's language preference is French, then show French. Else, show English. And with an alias of name. The second field in the query is the table's primary key. This is done for my lookup table, where active is yes. Order the results by the display order, then, just in case, alphabetized by the first field. That's a query. A bit awkward, 
reading an Oracle Select Statement on a podcast without a slide or printed text? I intend to demonstrate the consistency we gain by violating the third normalization form. Together, our team assumed we will only and forever support three languages. This decision gained us speed and consistency. Instead of risking inefficiency, we gained efficiency. Look at this from another perspective. Could our client quickly and easily begin to offer services throughout the European Union? No, not easily. That falls beyond our assumption. How might we do this? Option one, we create a new row in each table for each language that we support. Here is the by post row in German, and here is the by post row in Spanish. Por correo postal, and here is the by post now in Italian. Proposta. Option two, we use a separate table to store the name fields in various languages and keep the other fields in the parent row. Option three, we get super esoteric and use the never discussed sixth data normalization form developed in 2003. So esoteric, I'll gloss over it. It's just not often used. Each data table has a primary key and one field. Very odd. Option four. We jump free of the constraints placed on us in the 1970s. The tables have one field called name. We then store the language we want in a JSON data format. JSON is a text-based data structure that we can store within a field. Oracle can query it well and fast. My first instinct, that first solution I argued for, which I described as option one, satisfies the third normalization form. Then it immediately violates the fourth normalization form. Options two and three are rather stupid and inefficient when writing code and developing Apex web pages. In option four, I suggested we could store the various languages within a JSON data structure. It is possible and clever. It satisfies the common data normalization rules from the 20th century while embracing the 21st century technology common to the internet. We didn't do it this way. But instantly, I could picture the time and financial investment to take the application from regional to global. Too cool, huh? That sort of flexibility we need to introduce into software. Few of you listeners may remember or experience the Y2K shenanigans. It resulted from a pair of flawed assumptions. Database developers working during the middle part of the 20th century assumed their software would last 50 or 40 or 30 years. Database application developers made this assumption in some cases. In other cases, the companies that developed the programming languages and the database environments decided to save space by ignoring the century portion of a date. Just a dumb decision when inventing stuff. Sometimes we learn these lessons. Sometimes we fail to learn them and repeat them. Duplicating data to accommodate languages of Europe or the UN fell beyond the assumptions that Dr. Cobb made with the data normalization model he created. We failed to assume that we might want to use the same software and same data in multiple languages simultaneously. This type of long arcing vision comes hard to us. 
Let's talk about the metric system as another digression. The United States has simultaneously rejected the requirements to join the international community by using the metric system and thoroughly embraced the metric system as our de facto standard. Yes, our speed limit signs and markers on the highway are all now in miles. I say now because when I was a kid, we displayed both kilometers and miles here in New England. When I was in primary school near Boston, Massachusetts, we never learned the American system. I never learned it in high school. During my university years, I studied biology and chemistry. Yet another education focused only on the metric system. In the United States, the military, the food industry, medicine, and all science exclusively engaged the metric system. The secret surprise for Americans came in the recent years when a government agency quietly redefined the inch. The American inch is now based on the metric system. We didn't change the length from 254 millimeters. We simply wrote that down as the rule in a book of rules that nobody reads. Except for that one bad moment with the Hubble telescope, the United States team used imperial measurements for a task and the, and the European team used metric. We had to send the space shuttle up to fix that mess. The assumptions we make at the outset of a project matter. It may cost millions to fix an issue. What would Oracle or any relational database look like if, from day one, the architect said, we must have nearly identical data available for any of 150 common languages? What would data tables look like? It would have changed Dr. Cobb's approach to data normalization. Thankfully, Oracle and other systems recognize that dates must be a date type that can support all dates, all time zones for all people. We made better assumptions with dates. Dates are an interesting data structure that include date, time, and time zones. I will return to JSON as a data storage technology in later episodes. Given this episode focuses on assumptions and their long-term impact to technology and projects, such as our Electrotest Endeavor, I'll return to the discussion about fonts. Browsers do not inherently know about fonts. Browsers must look to an external library of definitions to know how to shape their letters within a font. Electrotest provided us a brand book informing us of their color palette and their corporate font selection. I looked within the common font libraries to find the exact font. I then selected the next closest. It was sourced by Google as a Google font. I deployed these fonts with a quick line in a header of our HTML process, linking to Google as the remote library for the font. It looked good. It worked well. And apparently, the practice violated European data privacy laws called GDPR. General Data Protection Regulation. Someone observed that when one links to Google for services such as fonts, Google gains insights to your web application. Quite literally, all they need, who, where, what browser, how long a user connected, what pages were touched by the user. Google uses the free font reference library as a way of capturing more data that they then use to track us and monetize our behavior. I assume that was the case when you log in to an application with your Google or Facebook account. Ain't nothing free. Yes, using Google's font came easy and free. 
Google does not do this for free, nor does it provide these libraries for the public's good. They cover their costs and make money from their actions. Similarly, if you use a Google login or a Facebook login or Microsoft or Apple or Amazon, then your actions are fully visible to these vendors. They know what you buy, where you were when you made the purchase. They know what you searched. They know it all. To comply with GDPR, we had to download the font, host it on our own server, keep it all internal and private. It cost our team and the client a few ducats or euros each month to comply. That's okay. Well done us. We understood and followed the law. Well, not me. I had to be taught about GDPR. Now I'm a fan. I'd like to see similar laws here in the U.S. During the episode... We explored the impact of assumptions we make. We explored historical assumptions and guidance on how data ought to be structured. Then I presented exceptions to these rules. When developing complex systems, we must find ways through complex challenges. I find joy in that. Of course, I got frustrated when we need to violate beliefs that are the core of my database career. Then I find joy in delivering systems that people will use and work on in the real world. Until next time, be well, do good, and have fun. The Soul of an Internet Machine is a copyrighted production of Fire Media LLC 2023. All rights reserved. You can find me at my website, christinamore.us. Email is okay. Christina at christinamore.us. For now, I am still on Twitter with at Seymour underbar SP. That's Charlie Mike. C-M-O-O-R-E underbar S-P. Music